today we're starting a new series. It's eight weeks of uh, living free. And it's a bit of a different topic. But I believe that God is wanting to set us free. He's wanting to break strongholds. He's wanting to change mindsets. He's wanting to bring healing. And the things that we struggle with, the things that we have been battling with in our lives, He's wanting to break those chains off us. And as we start this morning, Lord, I just want to ask, thank you, Holy Spirit, that you're here. Thank you that we don't need to invite you because you're already here. Thank you that you long to be present with us. You long to see us free. You long to see us whole. And so, Father, as I start this topic, Lord, would you just help me this morning? Uh, help me to bring the message that you want to bring in Jesus' mighty name. So welcome to everybody on the live stream as well. Uh, there's a number of you who are not able to be in the room, but it's great to have you here. So uh, over the last few weeks, um, when Dave Lestry was here and Chris Gore was here, and they talked about the thing that we've been talking about and that's the fact that over the last couple of years, it's become really apparent to us that we really want to be investing more time into discipling. And what does it mean to become big people? God is wanting to grow us into big people, right? Free of all the stuff that trips us up and holds us back. He's wanting us to be fully free. He's wanting us to be the fullest version of what he's calling us into. So God wants us to be healthy. He wants us to be whole. He wants us to be free. And in this series, we start with a question. Is it possible to be spiritually mature, which is our goal, right? While remaining emotionally unhealthy. Sorry, this isn't going to be a light message. <laughs> Get comfortable. <laughs> Give some wriggle room to the person next to you and uh, buckle up. But what does it even mean to be emotionally healthy? It's a big question, isn't it? I know we've got some counsellors here. Maybe they've got some good ideas about that. Um, but what does it, and what has it really got to do with our faith? Why are we talking about that in church? To be a big person, I know I have to grow. We have to grow. But how is growth measured? Is it measured by how often I attend church? How much I give? How much I serve? How many hours I pray or worship, preach, feed the poor? Or how many life groups I'm part of? Am I trying to grow into the perfect person? Is that what it means? What does growth and emotionally healthy spirituality really look like? Uh, several years ago, I worked with a person. She was talented in a lot of areas and seemed quite confident to the people who met her. She could be really nice when you talked to her, but there were other times she'd be highly reactive and defensive. Know anybody like that? <laughs> there were some subjects 
I just knew we're not going to be good ones for her. And she would either go really quiet and pull back or she would give what seemed like a disproportionate reaction to what had been said or done. Some days she was just really prickly. Our boss (laughs) even gave her a cactus one time (laughs) to point out the fact that she was difficult to get through to. Ouch. There were a number of people around her who actually had quite poor mental and emotional health, which also affected her and left her distracted and somewhat disconnected. She had moments of joy, but not that often. It was always fun to see her sparkle when she caught those moments of freedom. She had poor boundaries and wasn't able to say no, and she would end up tired and resentful as she overcommitted to things and realised that she'd overextended or was doing things out of obligation. Because of this, she never prioritised time with friends or time for herself even. If others around her managed to prioritise themselves, she would resent it and get mad at them making, um, thinking that they were being selfish. She was pretty good at some things, but also super competitive. Whatever was happening, she always wanted to win and be the best. She obviously cared a lot about people and gave lots of her time and energy to them, But when her own insecurities surfaced, it gave mixed messages and confused people. When people would thank her or compliment her on something she did, she could never receive it and just say, thank you, because she couldn't accept or believe that she had done something that was good enough or believe that people actually liked her. Some people around her thought she was amazing and others couldn't figure out where they stood with her. I watched her with her ups and downs and struggles, and I think that she actually had a lot of unresolved pain that people didn't see or understand. Because she was quite capable in many areas, people never really guessed the insecurities or self-loathing that she felt about herself. When she had babies, Instead of taking time off work, she kept working and tried to hide the postnatal depression that left her not wanting to get out of bed most days or just sad that she had woken up in the morning at all. She would put on a brave face and continue on with most people having no idea what was really going on in her inner world. She had some successes, but not what she could have achieved had her emotional health been better. I knew her really well, because that was me. Peter Scazzaro says, we are like icebergs. People only get to see the top 10% of us, and the other 90%, sound terrible at maths, the other 90% is submerged. This series has some really great tools for life, for healing, and for real transformation. And if we're keen to allow God into the areas that are emotionally unhealthy in us, he will do amazing things. Our mission statement is transforming the world with the good news of Jesus. 
And that starts with each one of us. Dr. Paul Ellis, he's a theologian up in uh, Auckland, says this. When we cultivate the attitude that church is a place for perfect people with perfect hair and perfect smiles, we inevitably marginalize those who are going through hard times. You've got to be walking in victory every day. What if you're not? What if you can't get out of bed because you're bound with anxiety and fear? What then? People suffering with mental illness and emotional instability can be made to feel like the lepers of old. And this happens when they hear things like, depression is a sin. You're never going to hear that here, by the way. (laughs) If you read your Bible every day, you will never get depressed. Right? This is poisonous logic. It suggests the mentally unwell are sinners and they are unclean who don't belong in our meetings. And they can come along as long as they wear a plastic smile and leave their problems at home. Jesus would disagree. Jesus had a thing for lepers. He sought them out and he healed many. He did this to show that his heart was always for the broken and those outside the camp. His heart is for those who can't get out of bed and whose medicine cabinets are full of Zoloft and Prozac. When we look at New Zealand stats, according to a recent study commissioned by the Mental Health Foundation, a quarter of New Zealanders currently have poor levels of mental and emotional well-being, including nearly a third of women. If we look at the slide up here, the stats say 78% of us know someone struggling in this area. 49% of us has a close friend. 35% of us works with someone. 32% of us live with someone struggling. 32% of us is us. It's us. And then 20% of us have a neighbour that's struggling. Those, Those stats are overwhelming. And these are 2018 stats. This is pre pandemic. I think Christchurch has been particularly hard hit with earthquakes, shootings, fires, and pandemic on the top. If I look at myself as an example, I have, I would have told you that while I had some struggles and some issues, my spiritual health was really good, right? I went to church twice, twice on Sunday, plus every week, Plus, life group, once a week, I was on the worship team, I'd been in YWAM, surely that qualified me for something, I read my Bible every day, I worshipped and played the piano most days, and I prayed with my husband every night. So what was the problem? I was actually really unhappy with myself, some of it due to poor processing 
of different life circumstances, events, and traumas. And there were a lot of lies that I believed about myself and the world, and I couldn't figure out how to get myself out of the pain. I knew I had to make some changes, which eventually led me to do some study. And one of the things I came across, which actually really helped me, was the concept of ho'ora, or health and well-being. This is an understanding from a Māori health framework developed in 1984 by uh, Sir Mason Dury, Te Whare Tapawha. Has any of you heard of this before? Yeah, a few of you have. This model describes ho'ora, health and well-being, as a whāranui, or a meeting house, a house of four walls. Each wall represents a dimension of our health and our connection to the whenua and forms the foundation. These four aspects are taha wairua, which is the spiritual. We're pretty good at that area, right? <laughs> Most of what we do is about that in church. Taha hinangaro, our thoughts and our feelings. Taha tinana, the where's Whitey when I need him? The physical, and taha fanau which is family and social health. When one or more of these walls are out of balance, our ho'ora, our well-being, is impacted. We need these different dimensions to be in balance for strength and for stability. By nurturing and strengthening each of these areas, we can become truly healthy and become the big people God intended. If we only focus on our spiritual health and neglect our physical, our mental, emotional, and social well-being, our well-being is compromised. We all know people who are strong in some areas, but are let down in some others. In this series, we're focusing on emotional wellness, taha hinangaro is about our mind connects, how our mind connects to our hearts, our consciousness, and our thoughts and feelings, and how we think directly relates to the way we feel, communicate, and act. Session one of this eight-week life group series looks at 10 signs that God wants to take you deeper in your walk with him. There are 10 key statements to look at that we can ask ourselves about and see how we're doing. Use it as a checkup really. A check up from the neck up, as Dave Riddell would say. These will help us to identify where to put our focus. Maybe it's being busy for God is more important than being with God. Maybe it's about facing the impact of the past and how it affects our present. Maybe it's about questioning the idols that are in our lives. The thing is that God is able to use us even in our brokenness, weaknesses, and vulnerabilities. But he wants so much more for us. He really does. He really, really does. Let's take a look at King Saul. You could say he was suffering from fairly major anxiety due to workplace stress. Some writers have even claimed he was depressed. I don't know. He wasn't there. 
He certainly had the conflict of high demand and little control in his work. We now know also that high levels of stress can not only affect our emotional health, but our physical health as well. The context is Saul's war against the Philistines. Saul faces extremely unfavorable odds. He had been appointed king and appointed by the prophet Samuel, but he was facing an enormous problem. When the Israelites saw that their situation was critical and their army was hard-pressed, they hid in caves and thickets. So instead of like, yeah, we're the army, they're off running away and hiding and, and fearful. And they hid among the rocks and in pits and cisterns, threw themselves down wells. Some Hebrews even crossed the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul remained at Gilgal, and all the troops with him were quaking with fear. Have you ever been in a situation where you've been quaking with fear? His people panic when the Philistine army gathers before them, which is not surprising as Saul's core army amounts to about 3,000 men. While the Philistine army consists of 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, and people as the sand on the seashore in multitude. Furthermore, Saul has been ordered by the religious leader Samuel to wait for the arrival after the hostilities already started. So there's been this kind of skirmishes already, and he has to wait for Samuel to turn up to tell him what to do because. Samuel's heard from God what the strategy was. The demands are extremely high, fighting a war against all odds, keeping his frightened soldiers under control and facing what appears to be almost certain defeat. Saul's control over the situation is obviously minimal. Before he can actually take action, Saul needs to wait for the arrival of Samuel, which he turns up finally seven days later. In the end, Saul cannot bear the stress, and he does what is forbidden to him. He starts by giving burnt offerings to God in order to gain his favor in battle. Giving burnt offerings was the domain of the spiritual leaders, of the priests, and was forbidden to the king. When Samuel finally arrives, he severely reprimands Saul. Saul is panicked and done what he th- has done what he thinks is right by burning offerings to ask for God's favor in battle. He's not centered. He's confronted by the giants in his life. He's surrounded by his enemies. And he can't see a clear way ahead. And the one source of help, the prophet Samuel, is nowhere to be seen. How many times do we feel like that? Then Samuel says, you've done a foolish thing. You've not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had... He would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time, but now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. It's a severe repercussion, isn't it, of taking things into your own hands. A bad day at the office and Saul has lost everything. When we're under stress, Even if we have an important God assignment, we can stuff it up if we don't have the right tools to cope. We end up trying to take things into our own hands because our thinking processes and problem-solving abilities are compromised. 
Where was Saul's attention span? What, what, what was he thinking? And in the next chapter, he disobeys the Lord's command by not destroying all the Amalekites and all the possessions as he was told to. He kept some of the best for himself in direct disobedience to God's instructions. The Lord tells Samuel he regrets making Saul king and that he wants to remove him. But when Samuel goes to try and find Saul to talk to him about it, he finds him building a monument to himself. So the guy obviously had some issues, right? The Spirit of the Lord left Saul, and he was afflicted by an evil spirit, the Bible says. And so he was disturbed and distressed, and he was looking around and wanting to see, you know, how he could find some peace again. And so he said, bring to me somebody who can play the lyre skillfully. Now his, his attendants knew of David. They'd heard about this young boy, David, and that he was skilled. So they brought him into the palace and he would play. And every time he would play, the evil spirit would leave and Saul would find some peace and some rest again. It would change his mood. What is the difference between Saul and David? When Saul disobeyed the Lord's direct command, the prophet Samuel goes to confront him in his sin. But rather than coming up to his sin, owning up to it, Saul tries to justify his actions. He makes excuses for his disobedience. And rather than owning his sin and asking for forgiveness, in pride, he argues that his sin is not that big. It's not a big deal. He points the finger at everyone else rather than pointing it at himself. Some good blame shifting going on there. David, on the other hand, too, would commit some horrific sins, right? But his response to God was very different to Saul's. Just as the prophet Samuel confronted Saul in his sin, the prophet Nathan would confront David. And when the prophet calls David out for his stuff, David immediately responds, I've sinned against the Lord. He humbled himself. He came into alignment with God instead of making excuses. Saul was the king the people asked for. David was the king after God's own heart. David won several battles and had faced a lot of his fears and wasn't looking for the accolades of men. But Saul clearly had unresolved issues. He had to sort his stuff out or watch his kingdom come crashing down. And that's what happened. There is an old saying that talent will take you to the top, but character will keep you there. How many times have we cheated ourselves from what God is wanting to establish in our lives because we've failed to align with his way of doing things. But how does God respond to our brokenness? How does he think about the patterns we're desperate to change but just can't?
How do you think he feels about the stuff that's happened in your life? The trauma, the heartbreak, the sadness that some of us carry in and out of everyday life. Sometimes we don't cry to God for help because we think he's upset with us. But when we do cry out, we remind ourselves that there is a God who is listening on the other end. We cry out to release the mental and emotional burdens that accumulate in our minds. We cry out because he teaches us that even in our pain, we are worthy of being heard and there is one bigger than the pain we're carrying. We attune our hearts and align ourselves to his divine presence and comfort that he offers us even in the darkest days. Many of us have struggles. Many of us have really dark days. Psalm 91 says, When he calls to me, I will answer him. I, I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honour him. In the Bible, we see lots of examples of lament. Lament is our authentic way of crying out to God, inviting God into our deepest areas of pain. Psalm 48, 6 says, God is our refuge and strength and a very present help in trouble. The pain of the past often clouds our ability to hope for the future. But as we stand on his word, he says he will help us. Hebrews, it says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. One of the things that I've found really helpful in my own life is to remind God of his promises. What? Has he forgotten? Of course he hasn't. But when I'm reminding God of his promises, I love to pray and speak over a situation. Um, it, it releases my faith. So it goes something like this. Um, God, your word says you believe in justice. In Psalm 103, it says, the Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. So in areas of injustice, I'm going to be saying, God, you say that you believe in justice. This is an unjust situation I'm in. Lord, I'm going to speak your life, your words, the scripture over my situation in this area. Your word says you will provide. Says, my God shall supply, supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Jesus Christ. So I remind God, and in so doing, I'm reminding myself, God says, your word says you will provide. You will provide. And they're the things I can stand on. They're the things I can declare over my circumstances, over the strongholds and the mindsets in my life that are tripping me up. God wants us to remember who he is. It's one of the reasons it's so important to show gratitude to God and to people. Because every time we're thankful, we remind ourselves of how God has been faithful to us in the past. And that sets us up for the fact that we know he's going to do that again. What is the sweetest thing God has ever done for you? 
What was the moment that made you believe that God truly loved you? Maybe some of you have not yet experienced that. If you asked others how God has been good to you, what would they say? So in other words, are they hearing you give thanks about what God has done in your life and they know, oh yeah, I heard that, I heard that story, I heard that testimony of, of how, um, let's see, how those people gave that house, that, that house, that money for the house to Catherine and Gideon. That was amazing. That was their house deposit. How incredible was that? So they, people who know me would be able to say, that's one of the things that I'm grateful for. We have the opportunity and invitation to go on a journey in the next eight weeks and learning to cry out to God and look at the areas and patterns in our life that prevent us from realizing our true identity. And John, it says, I'm the sprouting vine and you're my branches. As you live in union with me as your source, fruitfulness will stream from within you. But when you live separated from me, you're powerless. It's about more than pretense or church services. God wants connection with each one of us. He is our life source. And God compares his relationship with us to that of the vine and its branches. And when they are together, they produce fruit. This fruit represents good things, blessings that your life produces when you have an intimate, organic relationship with him. Will you allow God full access to your life you may have been walking the life of faith for many years even decades but other areas of your life that are off limits other areas of your life that are no-go zones other areas that are yet unyielded to him. Because I want to guess those areas are also the ones that trip you up. They're also the ones that you struggle with. And as we bring those things that are in the darkness into the light, God is able to set us free. He's able to do amazing things. Because God wants us free. He wants all of us free, not just parts of us. He wants all of us free. It's a journey that I've been on. I'm not that person from 20 years, 20 plus years ago, although, although my family and staff might recognize quite a bit of that still. <laughs> but I'm definitely not where I was. And I'm definitely not where I'm going to end up. And I've gone on this journey. And many times it's been really confronting and quite painful to allow God into those different areas. But so worth it. So worth it. Oh my goodness. God is always incredibly kind and gentle. You can trust him with your stuff. He's not a God who comes along and wags a big finger at you and says, you naughty girl, you naughty boy. We might to Sam, but I don't know. <laughs> no. 
But how can we go deeper? How can we go deeper? We need to get real with ourselves and get real with God and see what happens. Share with a friend. Will you be vulnerable enough to open those, those painful areas to God? Jump into a life group. We've got a number of life groups going and, and there's been several life groups that will be going just, just for the eight-week period that we're doing this material. It's great stuff. Shout out to Joss and to Dallas for putting it together. I mean, it was a big task, but they've done a really good job. And Jonathan and Alan and Petra have been working on editing it all. Uh, everybody else who's been involved. It, they've taken something uh, from a, a different perspective and put it into our Kiwi context, which is fantastic. What would it look like to be really fully living free? How good would that feel? You can't, you can't, we can't manage wrong mindsets in our life. There's only one way out, and that's to bring it fully to Jesus. Sometimes all we need to do is to just take one small first step. Might be just one thing. And then the next day we do another thing. And then the next day we do another thing. And before we know it, we've got victory, real victory. I was sharing with um, some friends just in the last couple of weeks about an area that I had struggled with for years and years and years. And uh, I just thought I was never going to be free of that. And it was something that kind of affected me, clouded my judgment, clouded my thinking, uh, kind of was always interfering with my thought processes and um, as I continued to bring that to God, I just took one step. And then the next time I took another step. And I'm not going to say that that was a straightforward journey, that like I took the one step and I never took a step back, because I did. But you keep going. And God gives you the strength and the courage to keep moving forward. And now it's like, I don't even think about that. It's gone. I'm free from that. And boy, it feels so good. And that freedom is what God wants to see for each of us. That we can be fully free, fully whole, fully healthy in every dimension, every aspect of our lives. Sometimes all we need to do is just quiet ourselves and come before the throne of grace going to pray now. Oh Lord, you've searched me and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You're familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, oh Lord. I pray that you will continue to develop in us the graces that create emotional wellness. Guide us to use and express our emotions in appropriate and healthy ways. Comfort us when we're hurting. 
calm us when we're distressed and anxious. Heal us when we're broken. Alert us when we're overreacting. Prevent us from acting before we think. Show us how to handle stress. And God, guide us how to keep our lives in balance. Open our eyes to activities that can replenish our mind and our spirit and our bodies. Connect us with others in meaningful ways and deepen our friendships, strengthen our family ties and connect us with other Christians. Show us your purpose for our lives that we might be part of something bigger than ourselves. Give us vision, hope, and promise. In the mighty name of Jesus.